This morning we're going to be reading Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask that you not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You may be seated. Now, sometime a while back, a friend of mine gave me some advice. He said, don't ever see how hot dogs are made if you want to enjoy one ever again. (laughs) Now, I don't know if I forgot about this or what, but one afternoon I sat down to view a PBS special on the history of how hot dogs are made. Now, before you judge, this was many, many, many years ago. This was before Netflix. This was when you had to be home at a certain time if you actually wanted to watch a show. And this was when binging was actually an eating disorder and not just a way to catch up on your favorite show. So without the streaming options, I sat down and began to watch the documentary. And it outlined the absolute horror of how hot dogs were made in the past. I mean, it was shocking, the, the low-quality meats, the, the poor standards, and I was done with hot dogs <laughs> until they showed me someone eating one. And after that, it didn't matter how many times they went back to the factory, how many times they told me about all the health standards, all I could think of was, mmm, hot dogs. Now, at this point, I know some of you are hungry, and I'm sorry for that. And some of you are wondering what, if anything, hot dogs have to do with the Bible and specifically the text that we're reading. Now, I'm not saying that the church is like hot dogs, but I kind of am. So when they were making the hot dogs, they they took the meat that nobody wanted. And it was parts that you wondered if that was even food. And they didn't take it from just one animal. They took it from all these animals. And these animals probably didn't come from the same place. They came from all over the place. And you couldn't be sure about the freshness of the meat. And through some process, which I don't remember because I kind of got stuck on, mmm, hot dogs, they create a food with some seasoning that is enjoyed around the world. Now, likewise, Christ picks people 
who have no value. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And he gathers together some from all over the world who have the same low value. And through some miraculous means, he creates something that is so beautiful that it describes his wisdom to all the cosmos. And so to this, all we can do is join in with Paul in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 that says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask and think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the eternal God. You are the creator and ruler of all things, and we are a vapor. Help us to see the greatness of your incredible love, and help us to truly consider the privilege it is to be in your church and to have access to the Father. Help us to look at our lives in light of our eternal purposes and not lose heart. Amen. Now, 12 of the 13 verses that we just looked at are a parenthetical statement. In verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Then he takes a little bit of a detour. He, his intent is to pray, and we know this because we see in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Between verse 1 and 14, he takes a bit of a break. He changes course in order that he can address some of the questions and the concerns that they may have arising from the statement that he is a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. And he encourages the saints not to be disheartened at the hardships of his assignment, but rather to rejoice knowing that it's for their good. Now, we looked at the first half of this parenthetical statement last week. This week, we're going to jump in at verses 7 through 13. Now, again, as we discussed last week, the word mystery appears four times in our total text, three times in what we looked at last week and once in this time. And so we've given it attention. And rather than it being something that we will never know, rather than being something that's shrouded in secrecy, by the way, my children want you to know that we've solved the mystery of who put the toothpaste on the counter. But rather than it being something like that, Paul lets us know that this is a secret that's been revealed. This is unknown wisdom from God that he makes known in his perfect and purposeful time. And the mystery that he speaks of specifically in our text, he summarizes in verse 6. So Ephesians 3, verse 6, again, reminds us, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is a summary of what we see also in Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. So if you would, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And this is going to provide for us greater detail on what this mystery is. And we want to keep this content in mind as we look at today's text. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that, we might, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So the mystery that Paul uncovers, the gospel is that, again, there's only been one way to have peace with the Father, only one way to have access to God, and that is through faith in Christ Jesus, and that is for the Jew and for the Gentile alike. Now, last week we looked into this gospel ministry, but we also noticed that Paul was outlining his role and responsibility as it relates to this ministry. He was a steward. He was a minister. He was an apostle, which means that God was going to build the church on the foundation through him. And he is Christ's prisoner. And today we're going to continue to learn about his ministry to the Gentiles, but we're going to also see his ministry to the church as a whole and its impact on the cosmos. So starting at verse 7 of Ephesians 3, we read, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Again, the mystery of Christ, the revelation Paul has been a steward of, is that Christ is one body and it's comprised of Jew and Gentile. And again, this mystery is Christ, this mystery is the gospel. And Paul starts this statement by reminding us that he was made a minister of the gospel. We will remember that a minister is a servant. It can be those people who are generally helping at at tables, the the waiters and the busboys, but a minister is a servant. So he was called into service on behalf of the saints by Christ. And as we talked about last week, ministry or service for the believer is not optional. Now, as a side note, so we can clear up any confusion, Just because we are all called to steward the gifts that God has given us, and as believers, we are all called to minister and to serve with those gifts, we are to remember that they are all different. We are only one body, but we have many functions. So there is no call in Scripture for us to try to copy someone else. We don't want to try to fill someone else's shoes. So Paul reminds us again that he was made a servant that he was stopped in his tracks on his murderous rampage on the road to Damascus. And he was, he was arrested. He was overpowered. He was given the gift of grace. He was given salvation. And he was given a job to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to make disciples of all nations. Now, in his legalistic pride as a Pharisee, he had been opposed by God. But once he was humbled by the overwhelming power of God, he received grace, which reminds us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as a humble recipient of God's kindnesses, he was keenly keenly aware that all that he knows is also a gift. It's a gift of God's mercy, and it's a gift of God's grace. And he would remain like those who Isaiah prophesied about and Christ spoke of if it were not for those things. 
So looking at Matthew 13, verses 14 through 15, we read, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Now, the, di- the disciples had asked Christ why he spoke to the crowds in parables, and he answered them in Matthew 13 and 11. There he says, And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And later in Matthew 13, 16 through 7, 17, it says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So having heard that thunderous voice and having been blinded by Christ, Paul appreciated the gift of spiritual eyesight and the ability to hear and to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and the gospel that he was made a servant of. Now look with me at verse 8, where it says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now for the second time in as many verses, Paul drives home the point that what he has has been given to him. It's an undeserved gift. By doing so, by identifying that this is God's grace, he reminds us that he hasn't earned it. The revelation, the mystery, the, the unwarranted favor are endowments that he has not earned. And it underscores another truth, which is that in order to minimize the possibility that his readers would start to think highly of him or think much of him, he wants to unabashedly tell them that he is the least of all the saints. Now to us, this seems a bit of an exaggeration. We look at Paul, we look at his spiritual leadership, his prolific writing, we look at the revelations and we compare ourselves to him and we say, well, I don't think he's the least. I think that's a little bit of hyperbole. Additionally, we look at those around us and we go, yeah, he's definitely not the least. But Paul understands because of his unique awareness of his own sins, that this was not an overstatement. And he repeats it in 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And speaking of his apostleship in 1 Corinthians 15.9, we read, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, this phrase, the very least, can be translated less than the least, but it drives on the point that Paul wants to reiterate that he is nothing. He has done nothing to deserve this, and he wants to continue to draw attention to God and God's generosity. And he further highlights the importance of humility in gospel ministry. We can never forget how desperately dependent we are on God. For if we, for if we begin to forget this, we may find ourselves like Samson, who wakes himself after his self-focused escapades, only to find that the power of God that he had taken for granted was no longer there. We might find ourselves severely humbled. We might find ourselves 
replaced. Again, by accentuating his lowly status, Paul also clarifies that God is not limited by his limitations. God is not dependent on our capabilities to accomplish his objectives. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our skill. He doesn't need our effort. He just chooses to use us according to his purpose. He chooses small, cracked, worthless vessels to bring his glory. And as he deems to use us, then he gives us everything we need to serve him. Now, this truth can be obscured when we look at things like Jonah, as we did last week. God had told Jonah to prophesy to the Ninevites, and Jonah had his own plans, and he hopped on a ship and went in the opposite direction. Now, because God used a big fish and a big storm, we can misconstrue this to think that Jonah was a big deal to God. But we have to remember that the revelation that Jonah had was given to him by God. And even though for us, creating this storm was a massive effort and raising this fish was something that we could not possibly think of, to God, it was nothing. So God does give us specific assignments, but it's not because of our unique capabilities to accomplish them. It's simply according to his wisdom and his counsel. And for Jonah, from Jonah, a better takeaway would be to ask ourselves the question, Would you rather go to Nineveh on a road trip or on a storm-tossed ship and in the belly of a great fish? Now turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings 19. And here we're going to see a great picture of our dispensability. Now, Elijah was a major prophet in the Old Testament. God used him in magnificent ways. His prominence was apparent by the fact that Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before, the return, before Christ. And he and Moses were at the transfiguration with only three other disciples. So only Peter, James, and John were able to witness this transfiguration. So we know that he, God had given him a significant role in the redemptive history. Now, in 1 Kings 17 and in 18, we see examples of God's power working through him. We see Elijah praying for the rain to stop and causing a a three-and-a-half-year drought. He mocked and slayed 450 prophets of Baal after discrediting them and their God by calling down fire from heaven. Then he prayed again, and the drought ended. But still, he was just a man. And in the first part of 1 Kings 19, we're going to catch up with this man on the run after he's learned about threats on his life from King Ahab's wife, Jezebel. The first Kings 19, 9 through 18. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and 
to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, you shall appoint, anoint Hazael, the king of Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Abel-Meloha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, in his defense, Elijah was probably tired and hungry. He had gone without food for 40 days. And in his fear and fatigue, he cries out to God and highlights his zeal. He says, I have been jealous for the Lord. And then he talks about his uniqueness. He says, I, even I only, am left. God's response, he sends him to a mountain. He has him watch as God passes by. To be there as a tremendous windstorm breaks off rocks from the mountain. To be there during an earthquake and a fire. Now, you might get the sense that this has the same feel that we get in the book of Job that we read earlier. But apparently, undeterred and unimpressed by this massive demonstration, Elijah continues to present his merits to God. Now, perhaps this is an appeal that Elijah had been practicing as he's walking for those 40 days. Regardless, he doubled down and continued to make a case for his zealous and singular obedience to God, and he restates again that there are threats against him. Now, depending on our mood and our personality, some of us would expect that God would, would go give him a big hug. Others of us would expect that God would send him back to the mountain and send a couple of earthquakes, fires, and, and see if that can get his attention. But what God does instead is he says, go appoint two kings, go appoint your replacement, and know that there are 7,000 who have not yet bowed to Baal. It's as though God is saying, I am the God of the mountains. I am the God of the earthquake. I am the God of the fire. I am the God of the rains. And I will always have and be able to raise up those who will serve and accomplish my objectives. You, Elijah, have never been my only servant. I have just chosen you for these things. So go and finish the works I have for you and prepare to be replaced. So Paul is under no such illusion of greatness. He understands clearly how he is disqualified and he should never have the privilege of serving Christ at all, let alone as apostle. But the, the, the reality of his own insignificance doesn't cause him concern. He is also infinitely familiar with the fact that God consistently uses small things. We see God using Gideon, who was the least in his father's house, and his father's house was the weakest in the clan of Manasseh, but God used them to defeat the Midianites. We see him using David, who was the youngest of the sons and the least likely to be king, to be made king. And we see him picking Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Christ. 
the place where he would send his son as a baby in order to relieve us, to redeem us from the crushing weight of the debt that we owe the Father and to prevent us from experiencing God's wrath. So Paul knew he was small, but he knew that God was omnipotent and able to achieve through Paul whatever plans he had for him. And we see here that God's plan was for Paul to preach, and specifically that he would preach to the Gentiles. He was to preach peace to those who had been far away from God's covenant promises. Now, in Ephesians 2, we read that Christ preached peace, and we, we touched on this a little bit last week. He preached, he preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. Now, we know that Christ, in his earthly ministry and his bodily form, didn't make it to all the world. He didn't make it to Ephesus. So to all the places that he did not physically go, he sent preachers. Some of them were sent during his earthly ministry. Again, we remember the 12 apostles being sent in Mark, and we remember the 72 disciples being sent in Luke. And we see here Paul being sent after Christ's ascension. And also, if we look at Romans 10, 8 through 17, turn with me there if you would. If we look there at Romans 10, we can see what a high priority God places on this important ministry. Romans 10, verse 8 through 17. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So as a Pharisee, engaging with, let alone preaching to the Gentiles, would have been something that was beneath Paul. His self-righteous pride would have prohibited him from doing this. But now that he realizes that he is the least of the least, this duty is considered a privilege and an honor. Now, after Paul explains how small he is, he goes to describe how enormous his assignment is. This inadequate man is responsible to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, unsearchable means incomprehensible, inscrutable. It's, it's something that you can't track. It's something that is impossible to truly get a grasp of. But this finite man must explain the infinite riches of an omnipotent God. Now, Paul's task is to not only explain how this works, but explain how Christ and the, these riches are enough to pay for every sin of every believer who ever will believe. But not stopping there, because God in his infinite wealth also gives each one of those believers an eternal inheritance, and it's one that will never fade and will never run out. 
And we will see that in 1 Peter 3 through 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, this wealth is it's inconceivable. We can't grasp it. And that's why in chapter 1, Paul prays the prayer that God would give them the ability to understand it. So when we look in Ephesians 1, verse 18, we see him praying that these people would understand essentially something that's incomprehensible without God's grace. So Ephesians 1, 18 says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So Paul knows that he is an unworthy man. He knows that he is not up to the task. He's trying to do a job that's unattainable, but nonetheless, he's doing it, but he's doing it only in the power and at the discretion of God. Let's move to verse 9, where we see, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. In verse 8, we saw one aspect of Paul's ministry. He was to preach to the gospel. In this verse, we see another facet of his calling. His responsibility is to bring light, which is to make discernible or to make understandable what the plan for mystery was. So the mystery had not been made known to previous generations as it has been now, but God has assigned him as an apostle to do just that. And now, rather than focusing just on the Gentiles, he knows that he must make it known to everyone. Now, there's some discussion about who this everyone is. Is it everyone in the world, or is it everyone in the church? Uh, for multiple reasons, I believe that this reference is for everyone within the church. He had described his call to the Gentiles. Now he's talking about his calling to the church at large. Now, there are a few reasons I have for thinking this. One, the book of Ephesians has been laser-focused on the church. It's been all about God and his church. Two, every other time that he was describing disparate groups, he was describing Jew and Gentiles. He was essentially calling to, to get away from that distinction, but it had only been those two groups and those were in the church. And lastly, the next verse that we're going to read is about the cosmic responsibility of the church or the cosmic role of the church. So all these put together make it seem as though the context is that Paul went from talking to the Gentiles and now he's talking to the whole church before he explains to the whole church what their role is in the cosmos. So the word translated for plan, when we read uh, Paul is explaining the plan of this mystery can be translated as administration or even stewardship. So it, it can be that this is the mechanism by which this is going to happen, but it can also be kind of instruction on how we are called to deal with this. So Paul is going to provide to the whole church guidance on how we're supposed to steward the gospel truths that he's been articulating. So last week we, we had the analogy of the plane, and we talked about the fact that the first three chapters would be the takeoff and the flight, and the last three chapters would be our landing and our disembarking. So the first three chapters, we get this great, high, and expansive understanding of God and his, his love for the church and the work that's been accomplished on the behalf of the church. 
And then the fourth through the sixth chapters, we get to see how these transcendent truths are supposed to impact how we walk on the earth every day and every night. Now, we also talked about in chapter two where we start to see, even as he's talking about the greatness of God, he starts to interject these things where we see men as co-workers in this story of salvation. We start to see men as preachers. We start to see men as apostles and prophets, and these are going to be used by God to build the church. And we said that at that time, that seemed like our captain saying, put your seat backs and tray tables in their upright position because we're descending, we're about to land. And as we look at his instruction here, as we look at the fact that he's about to tell us how we are supposed to administer, how we are supposed to be stewards of the gospel ministry, it's kind of like when the, when the landing gear goes down. You know that you are moments away from being in contact with the earth. And in the context of Ephesians, we know that we are mere verses of way from chapter four, where he's going to go on and describe how we are supposed to walk day in, day in, day out accordingly in, in knowledge of these great truths that he spent so much time teaching us. But before we get there, Paul wants our attention, he wants to focus our attention on our God, our God as the creator of the universe, the creator of all things. And this helps us, of course, to put things in their proper perspective. We know that God is over all. But we can also gain from this a supreme confidence in the purposes and plan of God because of his creative power. So if we look at Ephesians 2, verses 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our God has specific designs that he has made us for, and each of us can accomplish them each of us can accomplish these specific ministries that he selected for us because he's made us to do so. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, no matter if we believe that we can rightly look at Paul and say, you are wrong, I am in fact the least. No matter if our sins are that great in our eyes and are that great at all, when we, become, when we come to Christ, we are a new creation. So again, we have been made as a new creature, able to walk according to and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Looking at Ephesians 2, 14 through 15, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So God, as the creator of the church, he knows how it's meant to function. He knows how it works. So we can have confidence in his plans. And looking at Colossians 1:16, 1, 1 verse 16. For by him all things were created in the heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So in light of the fact that God is creator of all the rulers and authorities, and we are in Christ seated high above all rule and dominion and power and authority, we can have confidence that even though we are to wrestle with spiritual forces of evil, we will have victory. Moving on to verse 10, 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, we know that God loves his church, and that has been clear throughout Ephesians. That has been the point of these first several chapters. Uh, We know that by reading that he has redeemed us by the blood of his son, and he has ordained that the church would reign in Christ. But here we see another function for the church. So through the church, God makes his manifold wisdom known to angels. Now, manifold can mean multicolored. It can be like Joseph's uh, jacket. It denotes multifaceted. It's rich with diversity. And in the context of Ephesians, we know that it can be also multicultural. And here are some of the aspects that God uses to demonstrate his wisdom in the church. So God demonstrated his multifaceted wisdom to the church by the creation of the church, the composition of the church, the conduct of the church, and the consummation of the church. So God the Father created his church by predestining, predetermining that sinners would be reconciled to him by the shed blood of Christ. And this display, this formation of this body, defies comprehension. It's undeserved. And the composition, this has been what we've been talking about, this mystery of how God is combining people from all nations. The fact that God would save anyone is amazing. The the fact that God would take rebellious God-haters from all over the world and all throughout time and draw them to peace in himself and to one another is simply astounding. So we know that the body doesn't consist of just Jews or just Greeks. It's not just hands or just feet. It's not just preachers or just deacons. It's a diversity. And we see the wisdom of this. We get a little hint of this if we consider an orchestra. So rather than the one that I would design, which would just be a bunch of timpani drums lined up and people banging on those, we don't have that. We have strings. We have trumpets. We have flutes. We have violins and all these things, when they work together, they create this beautiful sound that could never be accomplished by just one instrument. And this, of course, should point out our own foolishness when we try to surround ourselves with people who are only just like us. Now we look at the conduct. Again, this is the way that we walk, and we know that this is going to be drawn out in chapter 4, but... We know that people around us are looking to see what God is doing in our lives. And we know that people in the the heavenly bodies are doing the same thing. And we want them to see God's wisdom at work in our lives when they look at us. And then finally, the consummation, the glorification, when we are finally perfected, when our bodies which are decaying are replaced with spiritual bodies that will never decay, and we are with Christ So as the creator of all things, God could have chosen any mechanism he wanted to display his glory, but he chose the church. And he chose to do that by exemplifying the creation, the composition, the conduct, and the consummation of that body. Now again, God chose this mechanism, and God also chooses the timing. He determines when his insight will be made known. And we look in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Now God, again, of course, established the timing, and he established this timing before the beginning of time. It was his predetermined, predetermined, preordained timing. And no level of righteous zeal, no level of service was going to change that. So in addition to seeing that, we also get our first glimpse into the fact that the angels are not innocent, or they're not bystanders. They're not uninterested, but rather they long to see the grace that God is showing to the church. We see that since we understand that, when we look at Hebrews 14, how the holy angels are ministering agents to the believers, and we see it also in 1 Corinthians when it says that women, wives showing submission are being viewed by angels in heaven. Now, a question that comes up as we continue, as we consider this text is, which angels? Is it the good angels or is it the bad angels or, or is it all of the angels? In Ephesians 1, we know that God has been placed over all rule and authority. So that's all angels. In Ephesians 6, we know that there are spiritual forces of wickedness. So that's the bad angels. So it's, it's not necessarily easy to understand which group of angels he's talking about here. For the purposes of this sermon, I believe that he's talking about all angels. So since the first instance that we hear about these rulers and authorities is in chapter one, and he has not changed his, his context to them, we can say that he's talking about all angels. And the righteous angels, they will rejoice to see God's grace. Those that are fallen will lament that they were not able to stop God's plan even as they're being thrown into hell. Either way, by grace or by justice, God is going to be glorified. Now, another question that comes up, which is a great question, is why the church? Why this group of fallible, finite, nothing human beings would ever be used by God? And we saw a little bit of that in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, where it says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's power is made perfect on our weakness, and rather than being obscured by flawed and broken vessels, his greatness is actually revealed with greater clarity, so much so that you can see it around the universe. Now, in verse 11 and 12, we see this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So in chapter one, we see again and again that God's purposes, God's plan are for the glory of God, for the glory of the praise of God's glory. We see in Ephesians 2.18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So being engrafted into one body is for the glory of God. So Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. 
So we know that we are by nature lawbreakers. We are children of wrath. We can't attain to God's righteous requirement of perfection. So we can't enter his presence by merit. But God, being rich in glory and mercy, provides righteousness apart from the law. But this righteousness requires that we humble ourselves and recognize our dependence on the only one who can achieve perfect upholding the law. Now, we remember in the physical temple in Jerusalem, there was the one that was built by hands. There was an inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And this was a place that only the high priest could enter, and they could only enter it once a year, and only enter it having provided sacrifices for themselves and for their, their nation. Christ is our high priest. And so Christ has entered into heaven, which is the spiritual and the actual holy place. And he has offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all so that we, because of his work, can enter at will. Now, this crucifixion, and and, and this was driven, and this was highlighted again at his crucifixion, where from top to bottom, the curtain that acted as a barrier to the Holy of Holies, the place that only one man could enter and only once a year, this was torn from top to bottom. So again, Paul rejoices at the fact that Like us, even though he's in prison, he has the freedom to access the Father. So verse 13 says, So I ask that you not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now here, Paul wants us to look at suffering a little bit differently. And we know that Paul was an expert on suffering. If we look at 2 Corinthians, if you would turn with me, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, here we find Paul pleading with the church of Corinth. He's trying to get them to turn away from the false prophets, and he's trying to get them to turn back to the true gospel. And while he's doing this, he explains some of the things that he suffered during his ministry, some of the things, again, that make him an expert on suffering. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a maddened man with a far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea, on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of the anxiety of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So the Ephesians knew of Paul's imprisonment and they may have known about some of these things and because of this, they may have begun to despair. They may have begun to show great sorrow. They may have been tempted to lose heart. But he wants to encourage them not to do that, but to instead continue in their gospel ministry. And he says in Galatians 6, 19, and let us not grow weary from doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul wants them to look past his hardships to see the blessings that they are bestowed. Now he has outlined his assignment by God on their behalf. He is a minister and he's sent to bless them. So he wants them to understand that his sufferings are actually a part of the riches that Christ is relaying to them. And it's a God's cosmic purpose that he wants to work out. He's there for their benefit. And a part of the job, a part of ministry, 
is suffering. But by God's great wisdom, suffering is actually a support for service. One way that we can see this is when this discomfort we have drives us to actually do what we're supposed to do. Again, that draws us back to Jonah. His time in the big storm and in the big fish spurred him to serve the way that God had already called him. And Paul's blindness of his, his normal eyes helped him to understand his need for spiritual eyes and helped humble him so that he could proclaim the gospel to the people or proclaim the gospel of the people that he was punishing himself. So God can use our hurts to get us to do what we were supposed to do. Another way that affliction can support ministry is that it can instill in us the character that is required for effective and productive service. If we look at 2 Corinthians 12 and 7, we see, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. God opposes the proud. So even when we are attempting to serve God, if we do so arrogantly, we can't expect that God's blessings and power be, will be there. We should not expect that just because we profess to serve God and we are doing it for his glory, that we are not, in fact, doing it for our own glory. If we look at 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, we're going to see other qualities that are necessary for effective ministry. So it says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God can grow us in these ways, and we see that in James 1 through 2, sorry, James 1, 2 through 4. We can grow in areas such as steadfastness. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So Paul wants the Ephesians to understand the value and the purpose of suffering because as we discussed, the landing is gears down. We're about to come into contact with our day-to-day -day lives. And we're going to experience how these truths, again, impact the, our lives. The redemptive work of God should make our lives look different. And we're going to see that in just a few days, or just next week. Actually, it's two weeks from now. But in a few paragraphs, how they're called to long-suffering. So this is not only something that we should express when things are going poorly, but we're actually supposed to be patiently bearing with one another all the time. And he knows, Paul knows, that in, when they're looking at this long-suffering, when they're looking at this bearing with one another, they could also lose heart there. But he wants to make sure that they remember to make the connection between the sorrow and the sadness and the hardship that they feel every day with these eternal things that he's been talking about so far. He wants to connect the affliction that they experience as they live with one another to the pronouncement that the church is responsible for of God's glory to all the cosmos. Now, earlier we talked about God's manifold wisdom, the multifaceted genius that he has. 
we see a little bit of that as we consider suffering because there's their seeming contradictions, but they are instead just demonstration of God's wisdom. We see that humility is a prerequisite to honor. We see that our weakness is actually an asset to God. But we also see that the beautifully interconnected benefit of hardship for the believer. We see Christ suffering on the cross in order that we may have eternal life. We see ourselves suffering with the great sorrow and guilt that we have because of our sin that drives us to that cross. And we see ourselves conformed to Christ's image, sometimes through painful ordeals. But this growth is a blessing. It's a blessing to us as individuals, but it's also a blessing to the body because as we remember, anything that God gives us is not just for us. So this growth that conforms us to Christ, that is a great blessing to us and an aid to us, can be an example for anyone who sees us. It can be instruction to anyone who we could teach. It can be encouragement to those that we counsel, and it can be guidance to anyone that we lead. So like Paul, our suffering is also for the glory of God's beloved church, whose purpose is to bring glory and honor to the creator of all things. Now we know God gives grace to the humble. And as we learn more and more about the sovereignty of God and salvation, we know that even that humility is a gift from God. Thoroughly brought no on the road to Damascus, Paul was also harassed by the thorns of the flesh, by the beatings and imprisonments. But this gave him a deep sense of his own sinfulness so that he could say with absolute honesty that he was the least of all saints. But God used him. He used him as he is known to use weak and foolish and cracked vessels for his divine purposes. So may we not forget the importance of humility in our service. And should God decide to mature us and to bless us abundantly like he did Job, may we not overlook the fact that he is still the God who laid the foundations of the world. And should God decide to use us like he did Elijah and start and stop rains and call down fire? And may we not disregard the truth that he alone is the God of the mountains, is the God of the storms, is the God of the fires, is the God of the earthquakes. And if we should find ourselves alone in prison or alone in a cave, or maybe just at a job we don't like, may we never forget that God will never leave us nor forsake us and he always has a remnant who's ready to serve. So as we can close, as we close, let's consider that a persecutor of God's church became a believer. The least of all the saints was made an apostle. A Pharisee who despised the Gentiles was sent to preach to them. Sinners who were separated from God's promise were saved. And peoples who were historically hostile to one another, were united in peace, in peace. So making this happen is impossible for man, but we know that all things are possible for God. All things are possible, including taking this recipe of disaster for disaster that we are and creating a masterpiece that is capable of sending a cosmic message of God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Lord, we are yours. We are your creatures and we 
have nothing apart from you, and we can do nothing without you. Lord, would you enlighten our hearts to understand the truth of that and the glory and the blessing of that? And would you open our eyes that we may see your loving purposes for us and for your body, even in our suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.